fear does funny things to people. Fear can do funny things to people. So I grew up with a paralyzing fear of public speaking. Right, you laugh, it's ironic, I know, given what I'm doing right now, but it's the truth. So I remember eighth grade, junior high civics class with Mr. Patterson, it's September, and he says, listen, all of us have to do a five-minute presentation on a current event, just five minutes. It's September, what do I do? I sign up for the one in May. And how do I spend that entire eighth grade year? I'm fretting, and I'm worrying, petrified, over that simple five-minute presentation. Crazy, isn't it? But that's what fear can do. Whether it's fear of public speaking, or fear of heights, or failure, or abandonment, or fear of commitment, or even fear of death. Now some fears we tend to rationalize because we call them rational fears. They make sense to us. Whereas others we would say are more irrational. So many have a superstitious fear of the number 13. And uh, Otis Elevator, the world's largest elevator company, uh, they estimate that 85% of buildings with their elevators don't have a 13th floor. They don't rent well. People don't want to stay in a hotel on the 13th floor. Or take this fear, omphalophobia. Do you have an innie or an outie? Don't ask this person. It's a fear of belly buttons. Right? Fear of belly buttons, okay. Sounds silly enough, right? We call that perhaps an irrational fear. But right or wrong, right? rational or not, what we fear teaches us, in fact, a lot about what we value. So I wonder, as you walked in this morning, what perhaps do you fear? What do you fear? And, and what are those fears, what do they reveal about you? Because we're going to be turning back in our Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Samuel, to chapters 13 and 14. We're going to find Israel, again, in some desperate and some fearful situations. And how her leaders respond teaches us not only about the nature and the consequences of fear, but actually the kinds of things that are worthy of our fear. So if you would, turn your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the seat back for you, you should be able to find it on page 234, on page 234. Again, we're going to be looking at chapters 13 and 14. And as you turn, Israel has a new king, King Saul. And again, Saul's got a lot to fear as we head into these chapters. The hope of a nation now rests on his broad and yet very inexperienced shoulders. He's newly crowned. Israel's never had a conscripted army. And yet we know back from chapter 10, verse 5, that there's actually a garrison of Philistines right there at Gibeah, right in their living room. And Samuel said to Saul, you've got to deal with this problem. And that's part of the tension we face as we come into chapter 13. And I think as we look through chapters 13 and 14, we're going to see this, these two chapters have one overarching message for us. And it's this, that faith in God's word delivers us from the fear of the world. And that's the overarching message of these two chapters. Faith in God's word delivers us from the fear of the world. And we're going to take these two chapters in three different scenes 
And uh, in each scene, we're going to try to look at sort of an underlying lesson under that broad sort of rubric there. And the first scene is going to be in chapter 13, verses 1 to 15, verses 1 to 15. And I think the lesson we're going to see as we work through these first 15 verses is this, that faith in God often requires us to wait upon God. That's the first lesson I want us to see from the first scene. Faith in God often requires us to wait upon God, to wait upon him. So picking up chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, beginning in verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Okay, we'll stop there. So what, what's just happened right here is, is Israel has gone from this sort of citizen militia to a standing army. Saul's taken 2,000 men, assigns one to Jonathan, and though we're not at this point informed who Jonathan is, you know, maybe he's some experienced military advisor, we just don't know. But to our surprise, as we continue in the story, it's actually this sort of second in command that starts to work. We pick up the, the story in verse three. Jonathan defeated the garrison, garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said, heard it said that Saul, all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. All right, so here we see Jonathan, the sort of second in command, so to speak. He takes the initiative, he engages the enemy, and at this point, given some of what we're seeing unfold in Saul's life, we're wondering, you know, maybe this guy should be king. But it's clear that Saul controls all the media outlets. For notice in the press release, Saul is the one who's saying that he defeated the garrison of the Philistines there in verse four. And if we step back for a moment, what's just happened is that back in chapter 10, verses seven to eight, that command of Samuel to Saul to deal with this problem, that command has now just been put into motion. Saul was commanded to engage them. He was called to then go to Gilgal back in chapter 10, and then he was called to wait seven days for Samuel to come and to instruct him as to what to do. And so this is the moment that Israel's been waiting for. The very reason why they demanded a king. They wanted a king to deal with this Philistine problem. And now we've come to the point where that threat is to be addressed. And the inevitable conflict is at hand. And yet while they wait for Samuel to come over those excruciating seven days, the Philistines are amassing for war. So we pick up in verse 5. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel thirty thousand chariots and six thousand horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Bethaven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul was still at Gilgal. And all the people followed him 
trembling. All right, this is not a good sign. You've got your first, your very first sort of mass deployment of Israeli troops, and what do you get? You get desertions, right? It's hide and seek among the rocks. Everyone is scattered. They are fearful of these Philistines. Why? Because it's the largest recorded number of chariots in the Old Testament, 30,000. We don't see a number like that. This is a formidable army. And the Philistines, they're not interested in terms. This conflict won't be settled by a bunch of suits at some security council meeting in Brussels, right? They've come prepared for war. And if you're Saul, it's got to be overwhelming. Your hope, only hope, is your people scatter. It's that Samuel will come in the appointed time and tell you what to do. So we pick up in verse 8. He, Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Again, back in chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the pink peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, And the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army, and they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Oh, friends, let's stop there. And let's just recognize these verses here, these are gut-wrenching verses. Put yourself in Saul's shoes, gut-wrenching verses. Just like that, in these verses, Saul has lost everything. He's lost everything. He waited nearly seven full excruciating days, and Samuel hadn't come, and with each passing hour, he saw his ranks dwindle. You know, waiting is hard, isn't it? It's hard. It requires us to trust God when every instinct, every shred of evidence, every fiber of our bodies cries out that we've got to do something. I've got to do something, whether it's waiting for a spouse or waiting for a child or waiting for a job. The temptation is always to take matters into our own hands. So we might be thinking, listen, I know God's word and I know the warnings about getting involved with non-Christians, but you know what? I've been waiting long enough for a relationship, waiting long enough. Now's my time. Or I know that perhaps this particular form of assisted reproductive technology, I, I know it can possibly result in the destruction of some human life. But I've been waiting 
years for any shot at life. I've been waiting long enough. Waiting long enough. Or I know this temptation to give in to sin, be it in pot or porn or a same-sex relationship, whatever it might be. I know it's wrong, but I've been waiting, God, for you to deliver me from my desires, and I'm done waiting. I'm done. And so we pursue those desires. I could go on and on. It's just, friends, it's hard to wait. It's hard to wait. And yet so often that is exactly, that is exactly what God would ask of us. At the most basic level, the Christian life is a life of waiting, and God demands us to wait upon him. Faith in God requires us to wait upon God. And the tragedy is only heightened as we read because we see that Samuel was only moments away. Only moments away. If Saul had just waited, you know, the offerings were done at sunrise and at sunset, and so likely it's the seventh day, the sun has risen, Samuel's not there, the sun is beginning to set, and as the darkness comes, fear overwhelms Saul, and he says, forget it, he's not coming, I'm going to take the offering, and I'm going to do it myself. And notice the cycle. Desperation, desperation leads to disobedience, which is going to lead to desertion, as we already see in Saul's case, and eventually being disowned by the Lord. That's the cycle. Disobedience, desertion, right? Desperation, all that, well, desperation, disobedience, desertion. That's what we see, and then disownment. So I just want to encourage to you, friends, don't give up on waiting for the Lord. Don't give up. His hands and his watch often ticks to a different time than ours. His clock may seem a little bit slow, and yet it does keep the absolute best time. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. He is faithful to them. But notice Saul, he hadn't just failed to wait upon the Lord. He hadn't just failed to wait upon him. But notice as well that he had failed to worship according to God's word. Notice in verse 12, he sought the favor of the Lord by offering that burnt offering, verse 12. And now we like to think when it comes to our relation with God that motive is all that matters. We like to think that motive is what matters most. So so, so long as I mean well, right, God will take me. It, it will be well. And while motive does matter, friends, it absolutely does, it is not all that matters. Obedience to God matters. God has prescribed how he is to be worshipped. He has prescribed it. He's laid it out for us. He doesn't leave it up to us to decide what we want to do. So just a few chapters forward in 2 Samuel 6, when the oxen stumble and Uzzah throws out his hand to steady the ark, God doesn't say, oh, Uzzah, thanks, man. That was a close one. I almost went down in the dust. Thank you so much for throwing your hand out and protecting me. That's not what God says. No, we read that Uzzah is struck dead, struck dead for his error. His motive wasn't the issue. The issue, as one writer, I think, helpfully put it, was that Uzzah presumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. My point is we don't come to God on our own terms, but on his terms, and Saul had lost sight of that. He had been given commands, and he disregarded those commands. He ditched the word. He drew up his own means of offering sacrifices and worshiping God. And so I just wonder, if you've come in this morning, perhaps do you approach your relationship with the Lord like that? 
Do you come to God on your terms or do you come on his terms? Realize he gives us his terms. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? No one comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. The only way to approach God, have a relationship with him, is through Jesus Christ. And we all need a mediator. Saul needed one in Samuel. We need a mediator because we've all sinned. I mean, notice in verse 11, what does Samuel say to Saul in verse 11? He says, what have you done? What have you done? And if you read your Bible a good bit, those words may trigger something in your ear because it's the same expression that God uses to Eve after her sin of eating the forbidden fruit there in Genesis 3.3. What have you done? It's the same thing he says to Cain in Genesis 4.10 when he murders his brother Abel. Oh, what have you done? Like Saul, Like Saul, we're all fools, which means we're not merely intellectually ignorant. No, we're morally and we are spiritually disobedient. And like Saul or like Adam back in the garden, we're great at blame shifting, great at playing the victim. You know, it's the people's fault, Saul says. They're all scattering. Samuel, it's your fault. You didn't come until like the last night on the seventh day. You came too late. Or it's the fault of circumstances conspiring against me. I mean, what did you expect me to do with all these Philistines and 30,000 chariots amassing on the borders? I had to do something. But you know what Saul doesn't say? Saul never says, you know what? It's my fault. I sinned. I was in the wrong. You gave clear commands. I disregarded them. Saul does not say that. Genuine repentance assumes a personal responsibility for sin, and yet all Saul does is make excuses. Just consider your life as you're confronted by sin, whether the Lord confronts you or whether or not a friend seeks to confront you, and maybe they don't do so as in a loving way as they should. Do you make excuses or do you see it and confess it humbly? You know, if you've come thinking you and God are in good terms, if you think you have your own understanding, just don't miss this. Apart from Jesus, seeking a relationship with God on your own terms is going to be as doomed as it was for Saul. Your future in his kingdom as doomed as Saul's future kingdom would be. But the great news of the Bible is that there actually is a man after God's own heart that we read of there in chapter 13. There is a better king. There is a better prophet, a better priest in Jesus Christ, and through him, and by turning of your sin and trusting Christ, as as Chad spoke about and Chaz did in his own testimony, you can be forgiven, you can be restored to God, you can have a part and a place in that kingdom. God has set the terms, and he has made a way in his own son. There is no other way. To reject him is to follow in Saul's steps. And just notice as this scene closes, Saul is there alone, right? No mediator, Samuel is gone. No everlasting kingdom. He's surrounded rather by the dejected remnant of an army, deserters hiding among the rocks. He didn't stand upon every promise of God and that word to deliver him from the fear of the world. And so he lost his only hope at deliverance. He lost what mattered most. 
And the only ray of hope is that verse, verse 14, that the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And at this point in the story, who do we think that person is? Well, it's got to be Jonathan, right? The only guy who seems to take initiative, matters, and follow and seek the Lord, engaging the Philistines. He looks like he has the courage of a king. But heading into the second scene, I want us to think about the second lesson, our second lesson, and that is that faith trusts not in human means, but in heavenly might. That's what we're going to see as we work through the second scene of the story. Lesson two, faith trusts not in human means, rather in heavenly might. This is going to cover verses really 15, the second half of 15 through chapter 14, verse 23. And just, I won't be able to read all of this, um, so just to give you a bit of an understanding of what's happening in these verses, in 13, 15 through the end of chapter 13, this sets the scene for a battle that's to come. And then chapter 14, verses 1 to 15, that all recounts Jonathan's own exploits. And then in 14, beginning in verse 16, all the way through 14, 23, you have Saul's reaction and response. So you have the setting of the scene, then you have Jonathan and his exploits, and then you have Saul and his response to all that's happened. So we pick up the story, the second half of of verse 15. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him about 600 men. Stop, just recognize, there were 3,000 men just a few days ago. We've lost a lot of guys. A lot have gone AWOL here. 80% gone, but it gets worse. It gets worse because our hopes are residing upon Jonathan. And yet, we read in verse 16, Saul and Jonathan, who's Jonathan? Jonathan is his son. Jonathan is Saul's son. And this is the first time we're given that important bit of information, and it comes as a blow because, of course, kingship is hereditary, which means Jonathan can't assume the throne because he is from the one family in Israel that has just forfeited their right to rule. And while that's going to take some time to unfold, it's now painfully clear with that little bit of evidence that Jonathan can't be this king that we're looking for. And it's now in verses 17 and 18, the Philistines, they're on the move, and they're going to surround this tiny little army of inexperienced Israelites. And then in 19 to 23, we read that the Philistines, well, they've deported in the preceding years all the blacksmiths. Anyone who could have made weapons for war, they are all gone, and they've engaged in a bunch of price gouging that would you know, certainly raise the eyebrows at the attorney general's office. You know, they've, they've dealt harshly with the Israelites And so all they have, these unarmed Israelites, they've got a few farm tools and they've got some kitchen utensils. That's all they've got, spoons and spatulas. And they're supposed to fight 30,000 chariots. It's no wonder so many were fleeing. And yet, while they have nothing with God, he's going to make it clear they have everything they need. They have everything they need. And friends, that's what God does time and time again. He strips us of all of our human means. He strips us of those human means so that he can reveal his heavenly might that he alone delivers and saves. Israel's temptation, our temptation, is to always trust in the means. Right? We need a king. We need a standing army. And God says, nope. You need none of that. You need me. That's it. I deliver. 
I deliver and I alone. And so God strips Israel to the point where she has nothing to trust in, no one to turn to but the Lord, and then it's then that he shows himself faithful to save. And friend, he'll do just the same for you. He will do just the same for you. Because like Israel, right, we're tempted to trust in the means. Right? We need a new president. We need the right justices in the court. We need a First Amendment Defense Act. And those all may be good things, but at the end of the day, they're not our hope. To rest our hopes in such things is to commit the same error that Israel committed back in chapter 12. It's to turn aside after empty things that cannot finally profit or deliver. We're tempted in the same ways as Israel's tempted. And yet we pick up the story, chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, so it's clear that at least two people, likely Saul and Jonathan, have something to fight with. Carry his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahatub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone out. Stop there. Once again, what do we see? Jonathan's on the move, and Saul is sitting. He's not only sitting, he's apparently fanning himself by the pomegranate trees with a Mai Tai. Right? He is there doing that while Jonathan is out seeking to engage the enemy. And notice who is at Saul's side? A descendant of Eli. A descendant of Eli. Now we see there are two cursed houses running things in Israel, right? Dwindling numbers, a disappearing son, Eli's descendants back in the picture. Israel is in disarray. That's the picture. And yet picking up the story in, in verse 6, chapter 14, verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. All right, we'll stop. And this is one of the first rays of hope we've seen in this hopeless account. In the midst of such insurmountable odds, right, we all want that courage to stare fear in the face and proclaim nothing can hinder the Lord by saving by many or by few. We're thinking Jonathan must have some amazing strategy up his sleeve. Right, he must have a real ace in the deck. He must know something. For notice his armor bearer opts into the mission assuredly Saul's got 600, and of course, Jonathan is just one. Just one is armor bearer. That's all he has. So what's his strategy? We pick up in verse 8. Jonathan says, behold, we will cross over to the men. We will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us 
So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes in which they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan, his armor bearer, and said, come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Stop. Strategy? Honestly, what strategy is that? This looks like a suicide mission. First, he says, okay, let's give up the element of surprise. Let's just announce, all two of us, our presence to the enemy. And given that they've got superior numbers and they've got the strategic advantage of being on the high point, let's establish a sign. And if our foes give up the advantage of the high ground and come down to us, well, then we won't fight them. But if they maintain the advantage of the high ground and call us up to them, yeah, that's when we'll engage in the fight. It's ridiculous. This isn't a strategy. This isn't what they teach you at West Point. And yet there he is. Somehow he thinks, crawling on hands and knees before spears and arrows and rocks, whenever he's going to somehow take the garrison of these Philistines. Is this just bluster and bravado of some, some youth? Right? How do we explain this? I think we explain it. A faith that's trusting not in human means but in heavenly might. That's what Jonathan has, a faith that's not looking to human means, trusting in God's heavenly might. And it's not conceit. Notice what he says in verse 6. He says, not that God will work for us. He says, God may work for us. Jonathan's not some prosperity preacher who's turned God into his errand boy. He knows God's word He knows it's in that word that delivers him from the fear of the world, and he knows the face of his God. He knows this God lights up when faced with impossible situations. That's where God loves to do work, in those impossible situations. Like when he looked upon a disconsolate Abraham and a barren Sarah and said to them, is anything too hard for the Lord in Genesis 18? And now their spiritual descendants like sand on the seashore. He knows he's the God of Jacob who having, or rather God of Job, God of Job, who having gained and lost and then regained everything declared, I know that you, Lord, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job 42.2. He's the God who's gonna inform a confused virgin there in Palestine that she's about to give birth to the savior of the world by saying nothing will be impossible with God. He's the God who speaks to his people in Jesus Christ and says, I know you have no hope of salvation, and yet with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jonathan's faith is in this God. It's not in human means. It's in him. It's in him to deliver. And no amount of Philistine soldiers, no fortified position, no high ground is going to change that. And so the Philistines, they taunt and they mock Jonathan. They goad them to come up and they get their answer. That's their answer. That was the Lord's sign. And so like some Jason Bourne or whatever, the guy scales up, makes it up to the high point and takes down 20 men just like that, such that we read where the Israelites were trembling back in 13.6. Now the Philistines are trembling. And the Philistines trembling over one man reminds us of how another Philistine's gonna come, a giant, and mock God's people, and once again, one man with a sling and a stone will deliver a people, and those Philistines will again tremble. It's yet another reminder 
this time a millennia later, that another one, another Israelite, would have to scale his own harrowing prominence. But this would be a wooden one. It would also before the mockery and the derision of the crowds so that Jesus once and for all could deliver God's people from their sins. Friends, there just is no situation you face that's too impossible for God. There absolutely isn't. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Jonathan believed that. Saul did not. How do we know? Because as we look up to verses 16 and 18, where do we find him? He's with Eli's descendants, and they're gathering again around the ark. And we're right back to Eli and his sons and their rabbit's foot religion of chapter 4 right back to where we were so many chapters ago. Or like the burnt offering in chapter 13, Saul is seeking again to manipulate the means of grace to his own advantage. And as you keep reading through chapter 14, as they're gathered there around the ark, in their eagerness, in Saul's eagerness to secure a victory, he knows something's happened. Someone's gone. The Philistines are scattering. He wants a victory, desperate for some good news. And he doesn't even, though, wait for an answer from the Lord. In verse 19, he says to withdraw your hand. He says that to the priest. So confident is Saul in his own hand that he doesn't even rely upon the Lord's hand. But we all know who gave the victory. Chapter 14, verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Bethaven. Israel didn't need a king. She didn't need chariots or horsemen or thousands of armed men or even a few good men. She didn't even need that. The Lord would deliver her through one man, through one man, the same way he has for you and me in Christ. And so we come to this third and final scene and our final lesson. And we're gonna see it evidenced in Saul's own life. That third lesson is this, the fear of man lays a snare. If it sounds familiar, it's a proverb, it should. Lesson three, the fear of man lays a snare. Because now Jonathan's got the Philistines on the run. Saul sees his opportunity to deliver the decisive blow. And so we pick up chapter 14, verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So, or you could translate that also, because... Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening. And I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. All right, stop there. In his zeal for victory, Saul makes an ill-conceived and a foolish oath that his men fast. Why? It's not clear. I mean, the, the Bible certainly doesn't command God's people to fast in the midst of battle. This is Saul's doing. And notice what he says in verse 24. Until I am avenged on my enemies. Saul's thinking in very self-serving and personal terms. These aren't the Lord's enemies, Israel's enemies. These are my enemies. He wants to be avenged. It seems that Saul is seeking to leverage the Lord's deliverance for his own political purposes. So he gives demands And he knows his reign is doomed, and yet he's desperately trying to reach and grasp onto whatever power remains so he can look strong in the eyes of the people. And so he gives this command, seeking to gather them around him to 
bolster his political base, maybe to shore up his position as king, and yet rash oaths rarely turn out well. We should know that from the scriptures. So we keep reading in verse 25. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was, it wasn't just there, it was, it was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. And so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand. He dipped it in the honeycomb. He put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. They became bright. Right? No sooner do they enter the forest, and what do they find? They find honey. What a gift. I mean, this, they're traveling about 20 miles between these two cities. So there was a half marathon here in Fayetteville yesterday. You know, they put those energy bars and goo packs along the way. That's what the Lord's done. He's just dropped that right in their lap. Hey, you're going to need this. And yet, Saul, in his stupidity, has forbid them of the very thing that God has provided in order to aid in their deliverance. But notice, Jonathan's the one guy who had never heard Saul give that command. And so, re-energized, right? Verse 36, jumping down there, Saul wants to renew the fight. But the people aren't exactly rallying around Saul at this point. He hasn't shown himself to be much of a king, and even the priest has to say, you know, listen, Saul, before you send the troops out some more, don't you want to inquire of the Lord first? One of the priests has to remind him. And yet when Saul goes before the Lord to ask a response, should we pursue the enemy, he doesn't get a response. And so he assumes that someone had violated his fast. And of course, he's right in that. And we read verse 38 of chapter 14. Saul says, for as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among the people who answered him. Right, horrified. The people know Jonathan is the one who had eaten, not knowing of Saul's foolish oath. He's the one who has eaten. And the lot then reveals in verse 41 and 42, that it was Jonathan. Jonathan is taken, and Jonathan tells him in verse 43 that he tasted the honey. And Saul says in verse 44, God, do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. You shall surely die. Jonathan should have been receiving a medal of honor for all of his bravery, and yet his own father is hauling him off to the gallows. It is all backward, and the people at this point are so horrified, they finally step in, and they say, nope, we've had enough. We've had enough. Shall Jonathan die, verse 45, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked, he has worked with God this day. Right, the people, they've left Saul's side. They've left his side. The fear of man in Saul's own life had laid a snare, and he, Saul himself, was trapped. Right, we've seen this man in his life. It's been a slow-motion train wreck, overcome by fear, by jealousy, by delusion. He is unraveling before our very eyes, trapped in his own fear. Friends, Saul is a living, was, 
a living picture of that proverb. The fear of man lays a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Proverbs 29, 25. Realize this morning, what you fear, what you fear will control you. What you fear will control you. Saul feared for his reputation. He desperately wanted to be seen as a strong and as a competent leader. He was the guy hiding among the bags, but he's trying, he's fearful, fearing his own reputation, and he's willing, we see even here, to protect that reputation at all costs, even if it means his son's own life. You see what Saul's done. Saul has replaced God with people. His identity is now wrapped up in how the people view him, not how God views him. And we know that because he was more concerned about looking foolish before people, fear of man, than he was about acting sinfully, fear of God. So just ask yourselves, in what ways are you like that? In what ways do you fear man more than you fear God? Well, how, how do you know? Let's just think for a moment. Is your life, in what ways is your life, controlled by what other people think about you? Do you struggle with peer pressure? Just recognize, peer pressure, that's just a secular way to refer to what the Bible calls fear of man. Right? You struggle with that. People and their perception of you, that controls you. Do you have a hard time saying no? Do you regularly find yourself overcommitting? Recognize that form of people-pleasing, that's just another fear of man. Another fear of man. Do you feel like you suffer from poor self-esteem? You look to people to build you up, to fill you up. You are looking to people and not to God. Fear of man. Do you suffer from a fear of being exposed? You know, this is often the one that can get business folks. Fear of being exposed. Seen as a failure being wrong before others, right? That's just another fear of man and how their perceptions will control you. You know, just in my own personal life, why do I never or rarely talk about the college I attended? It's not humility. I wish it was humility. It's not humility. It's fear of man. I don't say Princeton University because you say that university and people assume things about you, things that I know I can't live up to. So you know what? Better not just to say it. Just leave it out, right? It's fear of man. We all know it. We all have it. Do you leave an ABF, you know, the, the morning sort of Sunday school? Do you leave life groups reflecting not on what you learned in that class or lesson, but how people perceived that comment you made? Did you sound smart? Did you sound knowledgeable? Was it insightful? Was it helpful for people? How did, how did I look? You know, were they, were they commenting on what was out of place or what wasn't quite right? Did I that I have it put together, you know, whether or not we fear how our kids behave, whatever it is, in all these ways, they all reveal how fear of man controls us. And if we're not careful, it will lead to our own doom just as it does Saul's. We finally need God, not other people. And until God is bigger to you than other people, until he is bigger to you than other people, you will always be controlled by fear of man. You always will. You know, as we bring these chapters to a close, it really seems like Saul's reign was doomed from the day those donkeys disappeared. 
(laughs) way back chapters ago. And at some level, we get in 47 to 52, the close of the chapter, we get a summary of Saul's life. And at one level, that surprises us because we know his reign is not over. There are more chapters that come, and we know these summaries typically do occur at the conclusion of a king's reign. But I don't think this is accidental. I think by inserting it here, we're in effect being told Saul's reign is done. It is over. His dynasty is over. And though it's not yet clear, it is not in doubt. Verse 52 notes that there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. The very thing Saul was called to do, deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines, this he could not do. Aspects of his legacy were valiant, and yet his victories always took a back seat to his failures. His lack of faith in God's word led him to be consumed by fear. His world was awash in fears. He lived in a world where he was always being outmaneuvered, outmanned, outgunned, and we often feel like we live in just such a world, whether it's in court decisions or tax exemptions or trials at work or trials in our own home. To be controlled by such fears may seem rational, but in the end, it's deeply irrational as we see Saul's own fears were. We have the Lord on our side. What do we possibly have to fear? And despite how rational, even justifiable Saul's fears seemed, right, in the end, they were petty. They were unnecessary. His fears were all misplaced because he had the Lord. He didn't grasp it. A king would come, though, who would. Isaiah 11 prophesies of this king. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, which is so clearly what Saul did and what we do. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Oh, friends, that king prophesied of, that's King Jesus. The word made flesh. Faith. Faith in this word, in that living word, the word incarnate. Faith in that word Christ finally is what delivers us from fear of the world. So again, I ask you, what do you fear? What are those things you hold out as rational fears? And just ask yourself, can they deliver you? Can they deliver you? I pray you put your fear properly in Christ. Let's pray. God, it's hard to watch Saul's life. We so identify with him. We so understand his fears and concerns. It so describes us. We would not be like Jonathan. We certainly would not be like Christ. And yet, we're reminded of chapter 12 and reminded of that great promise that we even thought of last week. That great promise that you will not forsake your people for your great namesake because it pleased you to make a people for yourself. Oh God, we gather in that hope. We celebrate that hope. Help us, even now, this week, to fear you 
and to fear you rightly. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.